Matthew chapter 4. It's entitled, uh, The Temptation of Jesus. Now, I was thinking about this this week with some news that came out. Uh, there was a scandal that broke with Major League Baseball. Anyone tracking with this here? I've been reading some articles about this. Yeah, so the 2017 World Series champions, the Houston Astros, were discovered after a three-month investigation that they had been cheating. They had been stealing signs from the opposing catcher and pitcher and relaying the, that information to the, to the batter, and it, that's cheating. And they were using technology to do so. And not only them, but the next year's winner, the Boston Red Sox, are currently under investigation for the same allegations. Uh, and so I was reading these articles as much as I could. Uh, and one article I read uh, on ESPN was, Everything You Need to Know About MLB's Sign-Stealing Scandal. And so I said, well, that's interesting. Everything I need to know, this will be good. So I began to read the article, and it was a series of questions and answers. And, and you, you found out who got suspended, how long, who got fired from this team and that team, and other teams that were associated with it. And so people are losing their jobs. Uh, fans are upset. Uh, and, and, and there's all these questions and answers. And, and at one point, uh, the question goes like this. So... Two out of the last three of the World Series champions are, are, are under investigation for this and have been found out. It says, what are other players and teams across baseball, especially those who have lost to the Astros and Red Sox in the postseason, saying now? Answer, they're angry and frustrated and from the start have lamented that this sort of thing happened. They also might be hypocrites. Because when you talk with a wide range of people around the game about the pervasiveness of cheating, they all agree and admit it does not begin and end with the Astros and the Red Sox. And so I read this article, it's very fascinating, but, but then I realized, you know what, this didn't tell me everything I need to know about the sign-stealing scandal. It, it didn't speak to anything about the human heart. And the propensity and, and the, the temptation there, the, the temptation to cut corners and to do whatever it takes. But then I thought, well, maybe because we already know that. Because our hearts resonate with that. No one in here is tempted to uh, cheat in, base, in a little kid's sport so that you can get a ring. But, but we all understand temptation. And, and, and at least as far as our culture is concerned, the, the, the carrots that our culture holds out as the ultimate, the good life, if you get these things, you will be satisfied. All of them can be achieved if you get that ring, the one ring to rule them all. If you get the ring, then you get honor, you get new endorsements, you get a bigger contract, you get maybe new jobs, your fans are elated, you get worship. You get praise, you get whatever relationships you want. When you get the ring, then everything comes. And so if that is what our culture says, man, you have to have this, you have to have this, then it's no wonder that we would be tempted to cut corners and to cheat for the sake of the ring. Again, we, we don't wrestle with uh, getting a championship ring per se, but we wrestle with other things. Temptation is common to all of us. We're, it's so common that, that we, we, we know the cycle. We're tempted and, and we sin. We tempted and, and we sin. And it goes over and over and over again. And it's been going on in each of our lives for years. I, I thought of one of the most memorable moments for me this week. And I, as I was writing it, even the shame and the guilt of it was, was pressing down on me. I was seven years old. 
I've shared this story before, but I was seven years old, and uh, my, my friend invited me after school to come and play with him at his house. I said, okay. So I went there, and uh, he was my best friend, and I went into his house and went in there, and I remember the scene going into the kitchen, and on the countertop, again, I don't even like to say this. I was seven, but I, I saw a dollar, and I became transfixed on the dollar. And when I saw everyone wasn't looking, I took the dollar from my friend's house. Continued to play for the rest of the day and went home. And uh, later that night, my friend's mom called my mom and and asked, Hey, uh, uh, I wonder if your son stole uh, my other son's dollar. So she called me in the room. "Did Did you do this? I lied. No, I didn't do that. I could feel the weight of that. She looked at me skeptically and I went away. And later in the night, she found the dollar. She called in and she found, she exposed me as the liar and the thief that I was. She said, you're going to go tomorrow and you're going to take this dollar back. And so I, I remember going there and just the shame of handing the dollar back to my friend and my friend uh, assuring me that this isn't going to change our relationships. It's okay, but it never was. If you would have asked me, hey, is your friendship worth more than a dollar? I would have said, rightly so. Yes, of course it's worth more than a dollar. But in that moment of temptation, I was transfixed. I had to have the dollar. It was precious to me. Now, I wish I could tell you that because of the shame and the guilt of all that, I had never stolen or lied again. But that was just one poignant moment of a countless number of times where I've stolen and lied and cut corners and tempted and tried and failed, tempted, tried and failed, tempted, tried and failed. And it's, it's our story. It's all of our story. I have a, a friend of mine, he's a pastor in the city, and he had to take some time off because uh, he was exposed for some sin, not, not sin that would disqualify him from the pastor, but but, but as he came back, he met with all the members. And one of the members uh, said to him, she said, you know, I, I, I understand why you did this. And um, it, uh, it's okay that you did this. I just need to know that, that you're never going to do this again. That, that you're never going to sin like this again. And he said, if you're asking me that if, I, if I'm a pastor for the next 20, 30 years of this church, what you should be more concerned with is not whether, whether you hear I sin again, is that if you never hear that I sin, because I'm going to sin, I'm going to fall short. And that's just true of all of us. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 4 and we read the, the chapter title and it says the temptation of Jesus and some of you already know the story and you know well, what's going to happen here. Uh, the natural tendency, the, the pressure is like, wow, maybe this is the place. Maybe here, there, here's going to be the answer. If Mark just preaches a good enough sermon and if there's a good like emotional hook at the end, then I'll never sin again. There's a temptation for that. But even in this passage, Jesus has a warning for that kind of approach to his word. That would would be to to have stones when you need spiritual bread. This passage is not intended to give you a three-step plan the next time you're tempted and to have victory over temptation. Oh, for that we have to figure out what this, why does God have Matthew chapter 4 
in this place at this time. For that, you need to travel back with me 20 years to my first seminary class, Dr. Kermit Eckelbarger. The class was called Hermeneutics. They've changed the name to just say the interpretation of the Bible. I remember the class. I had graduated from CSU and I was in class and uh, I was coming to now study to learn how to be a pastor. And Dr. Eckelbarger said, welcome to hermeneutics. You're going to learn the art and the science of interpretation. It's an art because the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's a science because there's rules and, and, and structure in, in, to, to follow to get the, the proper interpretation. And so there, the, the classroom was surrounded with whiteboards. And he took his Expo marker and he uh, started the class by, uh, in big four-foot letters, writing these letters. And he wrote C-O-N-T-E-X-T. Context. And then he went to the next wall and he wrote context. He went to the back wall. Context. The, the next wall, context. And he did this for like 15 minutes. This was his lesson. Context, 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 context. And then he said, if you are going to ever stand up in front of people and say, this is what God says, you better understand what God says. And you will not understand what God says if you do not understand the context of what he says. So context, context, context. He, he, he's pushing in on us. And, and I realize, he says, you know, uh, even in this passage, we see that there is a way to use and abuse Scripture to say whatever you want it to say. Satan's going to do it. Don Carson, who's pastor, who, whose dad was a pastor, used to say that a, a text without a context is a, is a proof text for a pretext. Did you catch that? <laughs> A text without a context is a pretext or a proof text without a pretext. I, I, I'll figure this out eventually. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is you can have the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You can have it affirm whatever you want. But if you take it out of context, you're not saying what God intended to say. You're saying what you want it to say. And if we are to understand what, what, what Matthew chapter 4 God wants to say, we have to understand the context. And it, when we understand the context and we ask the question, why does God have this here for, the, for us in this moment? Then we begin to find life. We begin to find what he intends for us. God is showing us that in his temptation, Jesus is absolutely committed with exact precision and perfection to fulfilling the will of the Father. Since before the creation of the world, God had a plan to rescue and redeem rebels while they were still rebels, to make them saints and sons and daughters of God. And, and Jesus is the, the centerpiece of that plan, and he's got to do everything with perfection in that. And so we see some context. Matthew chapter 4, we'll actually pick it up a, a few verses ahead, back in chapter 3, verse 16. Remember the context. Jesus has come to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist's baptism is a baptism of, uh, of confession and repentance. But Jesus has no need for confession and repentance. But, but we see that Jesus was beginning his ministry of substitution. He's putting himself in our place to substitute himself for us to have a perfect repentance. And he is baptized. In verse 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we saw because Jesus has taken our place, that Spirit is our Spirit. That voice speaking uh, words of affirmation over Jesus is that voice that speaks the word of affirmation over you. But then we, in our Bibles, it says chapter 4. There's a chapter break. Matthew had no chapter breaks. He didn't write 4 at this point. He didn't take a break and come back later. He kept rolling on. So you understand the context. Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. Jesus called the Son of God. Then verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now remember the context. Matthew is writing his gospel to a primarily Jewish audience. And he's already repeatedly tried to show his Jewish audience that knows the history and that knows the scripture, that this is the Messiah. This is the hope for promised king. And so he keeps on going back, keeps on going back. So if you're a first century Jew and you're reading of the spirit, you say, I know something about what the spirit does. And then you read, he's led into the wilderness. You think, oh, wilderness, that's our people. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in there for 40 days. And in the wilderness, the people of God continually were tempted and failed. Tempted and failed. Tempted and failed. At every turn, they fail. Even though they try to renew their covenant, they try to say, we'll do it, God. We'll follow you. This time it's going to be different. They, They never were. And so now, Israel, who was called God's son, who had failed, now another son of God is called into the wilderness. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And it says he is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It says he was hungry. That's like a massive understatement of the Bible. He was fasting not to get weak, but to get spiritually strong. He did it for 40 days. Scientists tell us that at about day 41 or 42, you can do a 40-day fast on just water, but at about day 41, excuse me, 42, there is, <clears throat> begins irreparable cell damage. And so he is fasted, he is hungry. It says, and the tempter came. Now what you need to understand before we even dig into this is three things. One, the wilderness would have uh, shown the people of God, hey, this, where Israel failed, a new son has come and he's not going to fail. At every turn and every temptation, he is going to be steadfast in his success. But not not just that. It says there is a tempter. Matthew will call him the devil. Jesus will refer to him as Satan later in the passage. What you need to get out of your mind right now is the Middle Ages caricature of the devil in red tights, a horn, and a pitchfork. In fact, he loves that you have that characterization because that's no threat at all. That's laughable. What you need to understand is he was the most beautiful, most the most brilliant person, most brilliant creation in all the universe, the most powerful, the most persuasive. He was able to persuade a third of the angelic hosts to leave their worship of the one who created them to follow him. His persuasion is far beyond our capacity to imagine. Oh, he is not God's equal. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He might think he is, uh, but he is far more powerful than we can think or imagine. And he's got a host of, uh, of demons, a multitude that do his bidding. 
What you need to understand is he is persuasive. He is beautiful. He, he would, uh, if he were to show up here, as a, a pastor, my pastor used to say, if he walked through those doors, all the women would fall for him and half of the men. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you just uh, got to understand he, he doesn't mess around when he's tempting. You also understand that the temptations are genuine. Like you read these temptations and on the surface you're like, ah, those are kind of weird. I wouldn't be tempted by that. But again, the context shows us that they're specific and targeted to Jesus. He's trying to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. He's trying to take Jesus off mission. If he can get him off mission just the slightest, the mission's over. And so the temptations are real. Jesus is truly God and truly man. So, so let, let's not put one over the other in this moment. He is God who created the universe, but he is also man. He's hungry in this moment. He gets tired. And the temptations are genuine. So in, in he, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the, the author reminds us, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't even have a category for this. We understand temptation and sin as a pretty common pattern in our lives. He only understood temptation, no sin. And yet, you need to understand that temptation is real. The tempter is powerful. And he's going to the very heart of Jesus. And he will bring out his best game to tempt Jesus. Verse 3. And the tempter came, said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Again, I was talking with my daughters this week as I was going over the passages I often do because they write my sermons. Uh, I was like, so what do you think? And she said, well, you know, what's, so big, what's the big deal with that? God never said you can't turn stones into bread. Why, why, why couldn't he just do that? What's the temptation here? What, what, is, what is Satan trying to do here? Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get Jesus, who has laid aside his, his divine authority and power and abilities for the sake of you and me, he's trying to get Jesus to say, you can use it for yourself. This is below your dignity. You have the power. You're starving. You can do this, Jesus. You can be self-sufficient. You can, be, you can have self-gratification. You've got the need and you've got the ability. I don't see what the problem is, Jesus. You're self-sufficient. Well, Jesus responds. And, and Jesus is going to respond Three times, and each time he's going to respond with scripture. But again, the context is what's important here. He's going to respond from Deuteronomy chapter 6 twice and Deuteronomy chapter 8 once. And the context of Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 is that Moses has, is recounting to the people of Israel who have just gone through 40 years in the wilderness. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so in that context, Jesus is going to respond with the word of God for there. For them. And he says this, but it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, yes, I'm hungry. Yes, I have a legitimate need, but there is something even more important going on here. I am coming to rescue and redeem the world. And you want to give me bread? 
Doing the will of, he'll say in John chapter 4, 34, he'll, he'll say, my food is to do the will of my father. And so he said, I'm not going to be self-sufficient. I'm not going to rely on my abilities and my power to feed me and serve me. I'm going to lay those aside and trust in God the Father. This temptation will come up later in his life. This temptation for self-gratification, self-sufficiency. When he's hanging on the cross, the crowd will say, if you are the Son of God, take yourself down from there. You can do it. Why don't you do it? But Jesus is steadfast. No, I am going to trust in the word of my Father alone. So that's the first temptation. A temptation for self uh, exaltation. Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, self sufficiency. We, we get that, right? Every one of us have God given desires. And the desires in and of themselves are not bad desires. But God has given us a, a context and parameter for those desires to be, to be fulfilled and for our flourishing. And we live in a culture that says, don't have any context, don't have any parameters. You do you, whatever it is, don't let any person or any God get in your way. You fulfill your desires however you see fit, whenever you see fit. And that is to step outside of the will of God. And Jesus said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust my Father and His timing. Temptation number two. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus, you quote scripture. I can quote scripture right back at you. Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear up, bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So what, what's the temptation here? If the first one was uh, self-sufficiency, uh, this one is self-preservation. This one is testing God. Are, are you really for me, God? Are you really there? I mean, we, we can all relate to this. Like there, there are moments in our lives, there's pain, there's brokenness, there's chaos, and, and we're praying. It doesn't, sound, it doesn't feel like God hears our prayers. Hey, and you, you begin to say, God, if you want me to believe in you, you, you got to do this or you got to do that. We, we start to negotiate and say, God, you've got to show yourself in this way, in this timing, according to my preferences. And Satan's like, hey, the Bible says that when you come, you're, you're, nothing's going to go wrong with you. You're not even going to sprain your ankle. So throw yourself down here and you can have a tangible experience of God's provision for you. Won't that be great, Jesus? You can tell the world how God saved you from the top of the temple. Of course, now in the context, Jesus is going to respond uh, in Deuteronomy that the people are, are walking around and they are, they're, they're, they're dying of thirst. They're not there yet, but they don't see any water and they begin to grumble and they're like, God isn't for us. God has led us out here. He's, he's not going to provide. He's not a good provider. He's not a good father. They begin to grumble, and then God instructs Moses to strike the rock, and they get the water from the rock. And then Moses says this in Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes it. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, Satan, you want me to test my trust in God by throwing myself. That would be the opposite of trusting God. I'm going to trust God that in his way and in his timing, he's going to provide for me. He's going to be there for me when I need him most. I mean, at least the people in the wilderness, they had a legitimate need. Satan's tempting Jesus to put God into a position to act in a way that he has not uh, agreed to act in. But then there's the third test, 
And this is the greatest test of all. So then again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So, so this is a kind of a visionary experience. I mean, even if he took him to Everest, he wouldn't see all the kingdoms of the world. And so in some way, shape, or form, supernaturally, the, the devil is able to show Jesus. Maybe throughout time, maybe 21st century America and, and all the other kingdoms, show him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And after all, isn't that why Jesus came? To, to gather all the kingdoms of the world and bring them under the umbrella of his kingdom and, and his glory. And so he shows them all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is a, 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 a difficult moment, to say the least, for Jesus. We know this. We know this is difficult because what is Satan saying? He's saying, Jesus, you've come. You're the king. And you can, you can be the king of, king of kings over all these places. And you can have the crown, Jesus, without the cross. You can have the crown without the cross. You don't have, if you're the son of God, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be rejected. You don't have to suffer. You don't need pain. You can have it all. You can, I'll give this all to you, Jesus. Now we know this is a legitimate temptation for Jesus because on the night that he would be betrayed, the night before he would go to the cross, he would go into a garden called Gethsemane and he would pray earnestly three times. It says he would pray to his father, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Meaning, please, if there's any other way, any other way than the cross, Father, please. It says he's begging his father. But, but he ends it saying, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. So the temptation was real. Jesus, you can have the crown without the cross. You could do this. Again, we, the stakes are infinitely smaller for all of us, but there is always a temptation for, uh, for us to uh, cut corners, to take shortcuts, to, to, to get power that we haven't earned, and, and so on and so forth. That's why uh, in, the, in Lord of the Rings, the, the ring, this, this symbol of temptation throughout comes to all people weak people like Smeagol and, and very powerful people like Gandalf and, and in the beginning uh, Frodo is learning about the ring from Gandalf and, and he's, he's becoming kind of terrified by its power and, and at a certain point Frodo's going to offer the ring to Gandalf he says you are wise and powerful will you not take the ring no cried Gandalf springing to his feet with that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed and his face was lit by, as by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity. Pity for weakness and desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. I shall have such need of it. Great perils lie before me. Gandalf is saying, it's too much. Even if I think I would use it for good, it's too much. And, and Jesus, the better Gandalf, <laughs> says no. But I also think it's because Satan overplayed his hand. 
He overplayed his hand. See, Satan, he, he might be brilliant and the best deceiver the universe will, has and will ever see. He's also the most self-deceived person in the universe. Because he thinks he's king of kings. He thinks he has, the, the kingdoms are his. And he says, bow down and worship me. He believes that he's worthy of Jesus' worship. And in that moment, he's overplayed his hand. And so Jesus burst in, said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You're asking me to break the first commandment. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to serve, obey, trust, and worship my Father alone. Be gone. Luke's gospel says at the end of this, Satan left and waited for another opportunity to tempt him. We we know that the temptation would come, but it would come in different ways. It would come through his own best friend. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, who who do you say I am? And Peter says rightly, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, well, God gave this to you. You're right. And then Jesus begins to talk about the cross, about suffering, about pain, about loss. And and the, the text says that Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him That's never going to go well for you, by the way. And what does Jesus say? In his mind, he says, I've heard this before. I've heard this temptation before. And so what does he say? Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. So this is the same temptation. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be faithful to the very end. So, what are we to take of that? Again, this is not a three-step plan for you to overcome temptation. I've heard it preached. I've probably preached it like this before. Well, when Jesus was tempted, he had Scripture, and he just replied with Scripture. None of you are going to memorize the book of Deuteronomy, so I guess we'll just all give in to temptation all the time. That's not the point. The point is for us to behold Jesus We have failed a thousand times. He never failed. He is the faithful son who is faithful in the wilderness. He overcame every temptation. And remember the context. The context Matthew is pointing out. He is our substitute. So his victory is our victory. You might have sinned and failed a million times. But in Christ you have never sinned and failed. Because he has overcome every temptation. And so all that God wants us to do right now is to see and to savor and to rest in Jesus' victory. So rest this week. He's already won the victory. Look at him. Marvel at him. Marvel that he, unlike us, never traded in a lesser joy for the greatest joy. We do it all the time. Every time we are tempted and we sin, it's because of joy. It's just a lesser joy. But he never did that. 
In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus was able to see the cross, see its torture, see everything that's horrible about the cross, and look through that and see you. And see you rescued and redeemed. And see you becoming a son and daughter of the king. And he says, that's worth it. That'll bring me greater joy. I'll endure the cross. So let's marvel at that. So this is not a three-step plan to overcome temptation. But you know what happens? When you get lost in the wonder of Jesus' victory, you have a kind of strength that comes to your soul. You won't do it perfectly. But you'll have more resolve to resist temptation. And so that's what we take of this. We worship, we rest, we see, and we savor. Satan had taken Jesus to a mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all authority will be given to you if you just bow down to me. If you fast forward the story three years, Jesus will go to the way of the cross. He'll suffer. He'll die. He'll be buried. And by the power of God on the third day, he'll be raised again. And then over a period of 40 days again, he'll appear to small groups of people and large groups of people, as many as 500. And at the last day, he comes and he gathers on another mountain. And what does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go tell this news to the world. Go tell this news that there is rest. There is victory in me alone. This is good news. Let's walk out of this room today and and rest in that truth today. But let's also walk out commissioned by the one who has all authority and power and might. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you were victorious at every level in our place. Lord, thank you that in him we were victorious with him. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here burdened by sin, that they would turn to you, trust in you, and feel the rest that you want to give them. Father, I pray that we would be a people that walk with great joy into the world, commissioned by you to take this good news to the end that Jesus is seen and savored. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.